Specialising in back issues and the largest stockers of silver and bronze comics, City Centre Comics in Glasgow's Rudden Lane is the comic store for comic lovers. You want new comics and graphic novels? Then don't despair. City Centre Comics can help you find what you want and show you more. Hello and welcome to Working Comics, a podcast that's interested in learning about how comics are made from the people who make them. These conversations that you're going to hear are with writers, inkers, colorists, letters and publishers currently working or have worked in comics. I've been fortunate enough to have conversations with some brilliant people about their work and what it's like working in comics. This week I spoke to founder of Planet Jimbot and writer of titles such as Wolf Country, Savant and Good Cop, Bad Cop, Jim Alexander. I hope you enjoy. I'm taking it from looking at your work and your history of work and making comics that you, you you read comics at an early age, you started, your love for them started at an early age. Yes, that would be correct. For anybody my age, I suppose, uh, my era, uh, there wasn't really much else to do, to be honest. Uh, but I, I was never really into the humour comics. Um, I was obviously aware of Dandy and Bino and, uh, you know, the Bruins and the Sunday Post. But I was never a big big fan of that, that sort of thing. It was more the, the war comics that really got me into it. Uh, Warlord and Victor and all these antiquated, when you think of it in these days, terribly antiquated uh, comics, uh, but our stories, I should say, and uh, that just kind of sucked me in. And I think I was still at the right age, ready to move on. Um, then they, there was all the reprint material that came out from Marvel, the black and white stuff. I was really into Conan, loved the Fantastic Four, uh, Mighty World of Marvel was just absolutely superb. And it was just a stepping stone to, obviously, uh, 2000 AD, and the, the first issue of that coming out. Uh, I think that came out the same year as Star Wars, or yeah. more or less. And you know, everything seemed to coalesce for me at that point. It was, it, you know, it was like my main passion, and it, it stayed with me, uh, you know, to the present day. And when you're when you're reading them and and going through them, and you're growing, developing, are you got an interest to write anyway? I mean, are you? Have you always been putting ideas down on paper and developing ideas, or has this been something that comes later on through reading comics that you decide to start creating your own stories? Well, I, I did. Uh, you know, you, you composition classes. I don't know what you call them now in English, where you would uh, you would do short stories effectively. And uh, I remember the teacher used to always get on to me for. Uh, you know, it would be a three-page exercise in your jotter, and I would do seven or eight or something like that. You know, even more than that. They would do their dinger, but it didn't stop me from doing it. I just, you know, I just couldn't couldn't stop. And there was one English teacher, um, Mr. Lawrence, I think, uh, who gave me a, a collection of Edgar Allan Poe, and I read that, and it, it obviously saw something in my writing or that kind of like elements of macabre and you know that that sort of like you know uh, Poe esque. Uh, nature of the writing, uh, obviously not comparing it to the quality of Edgar Allan Poe, but the, the, the type of stories that he was doing. And I read that, and uh, you know, obviously that was that was a good education that kind of like uh, moved me in, in that direction. Two thousand AD came out. I would do the odd future shocks uh, proposals. Got myself a typewriter. Well, how old are you then when you're doing proposals for future shocks? Oh. I do remember writing them out in pen at one point. Um, I don't know if I ever posted them in, but uh, how old would I have been? Um, 14, 15, 16? Right, so that in your kind teens, of thing. that kind of thing, right. 
you know, starting to formulate things together, starting to try and, you know, put actually what you'd essentially call a story, beginning, middle and end, uh, together uh, with a wee twist, which was always a big thing with uh, 2000 AD, even back at start with Future Shocks, that uh, if you, you know, if you could come up with a four-page idea with a wee twist at the end, that was, uh, you know, uh, the, the way of, of getting into to that particular comic. There was also Marvel UK at the time as well, and um, uh, I was, uh, you know, sending um, stuff into Marvel UK, and I remember it was Dan Abnett, who was a Marvel UK editor way back at the time, uh, and he was actually pretty complimentary. He was really, you know, never bought any of my stuff, but it kind of, like, pushed me in a certain direction. And it was only, like, I think the last couple of years, uh, I think it was Birmingham, uh, Birmingham Convention, and I actually got to speak to Dan about 30 years later, and I said, do you remember me? Obviously he didn't, but he's a very polite guy, so he just uh, went with the, went through the motions, and I, I, I used to send stuff into you. I was always looking to, you know, submit material there wasn't that much information, but there was enough to glean from it. And I think even they did they did uh, um, encourage you to 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 send uh, proposals in. They must have, or, or I wouldn't have done it. But uh, in style of the style of doing a script for a comic to what we do in composition classes, or when you're taking and you're, and you're reading literature, where are you learning, or how are you learning that development of writing a script? Because it's obviously a different style that you're going to have to do and, and, and the order of it. So yeah, there'll be a the start, a middle and an end and a twist and a, and a narrative arc. But in terms of the layout of it, are you just learning that as you go along or are you finding different sources to pick up of, of how to do it, of how to write script? Well, I think there's an innate quality to a story that you can have to you do pick up. Go off on a slight tangent, it's just that uh, when I was doing screenplays at one point, they always used to say that you should just get a screenplay of your favourite movie or a movie that you like um, that you hadn't seen for a while and then you would read the screenplay four times and then you would watch the movie and then you would read the screenplay again and I did that with Silence Alarms and I did it with Robocop and uh, actually when I read the script uh, Robocop actually reminded me what a really boring movie Robocop is <laughs> uh, if nothing else I think it's that kind of learning, uh, but you've really got to have that innate quality of either having having an idea in the first place or that kind of imagination that can take you places. Uh, from a cop, from learning how to do a comic strip, that was um, I was in Dundee at the time, a student in Dundee, and uh, there was a comic shop called uh, Black Hole, quite a wee dingy place. I hope they don't mind me saying that. I went in and they, they had Alan Grant scripts, uh, kind of 2000 AD Alan Grant scripts, Ace Gart and stuff like that. It was £2 a script so I invested wisely in £2 and that was my template for it. Interestingly enough again uh, many years later I was in a meal, uh, there was a few guys there, uh, Wagner and Alan Grant was there and I kind of said that to him and Alan was absolutely aghast at this because he he said, "What? Well, I gave him these scripts for nothing. Like he's selling them for two pound." <laughs> yeah, and I, I kind of gleaned from that. Then people like Alan Moore were were, were uh, printing their uh, scripts in, uh, in in book form and all that, and that that was a different a different uh, avenue to scripting uh, the Alan Grant way, which was very, you know, nuts and bolts. And Alan Moore was basically, you know, writing mini novels mm. uh, per panels. Mm. I have to say, at one point, I was rather influenced by the Alan Grant method. So much so that when I was working with an artist and I gave him an Alan Grant-inspired script, he actually asked 
after my mental well-being after I'd, I'd sent it to him. When you start applying to different magazines and and putting pitches in. How long are we talking before you get accepted by the magazine? I mean, are you, are you talking a good few years of just the odd script going in, or is it, does it does it get pick up distraction start fairly early on? I think so. It wasn't like something that I was I was doing twenty four seven. It was something that um, I, I took my time over uh, and and I allowed myself to get distracted by other things. But it was always there. I was never completely convinced. I don't think that. I was. I wanted to be. That was my kind of like dream job, uh, if such a thing's possible, uh, to be a comic strip writer. But of course, how many people actually achieve their dream jobs, and when they actually get them, does it turn out? The one thing that kind of did encourage me was I mentioned the Dan Abnett feedback um, from Marvel UK, and I did get the odd bit of feedback from 2008 as well. I think it was Richard Burton that sent me a a letter once and said well I hope to hear from you again and that obviously was all the encouragement I needed to keep going. Never cracked the 2000 AD comic at that time. Then the magazine spin-off happened. Actually one of the proposals I sent in, I still remember to this day, when I was younger I was terribly compulsive uh, nose picker. I, you know I'd do it in public, I'd be sitting in the pub and I'd be drinking a beer, I'd be looking at one of the tables across from me and there'd be this look of horror on this person's face. And I'd go, what, what, what's that all about? And then I'd realise that my finger was really wedged up my nose and I was having a great good excavation. That was a terrible habit. And uh, But I thought, oh, uh, you know, uh, Mega City 1, do a little Mega City 1 tale where citizens of Mega City 1 bore into their skulls and start picking away at their brains in, in much the same manner. And, and then you would just follow their, uh, their, their physical and mental uh, debilitation, uh, you know, and all the chaos that would ensue. It would be a nice little, uh, you know, five, six-page story. David Bishop came back to me. He said, uh, too gross, even for the magazine. And, you know, a rejection's a rejection, uh, but that was a bit of a badge of honour. I thought, oh, too gross for the magazine. So... They were aware of me. At the time, uh, there wasn't as many people that um, submit to you know, various different comics publications these days. I was, I was aware that I was making some kind of name for myself, and that did come in handy when I, I, I did meet David Bishop. Well, it was actually um, Glasgow, which is the old Glasgow convention organised by Frank Plowright. I think it was uh, based in Candlerigs, very early 1990s. And uh, I knew David Bishop was uh, going along to it. It was actually, it was a canteen area, and I think it was sort of like uh, David was sitting there with one of these large chocolate-type profiterole-type things, which was going to have for brunch. And uh, the poor man was just probably about to take a bite of it, and then suddenly I appeared. Uh, Lisa was polite and asked if I could sit down and chat to him. And he did recognise my name from... uh, the various things that I'd, uh, you know, submitted to him previously. And uh, we started chatting away, and uh, I didn't know at the time, but uh, the magazine was uh, changing from fortnightly to monthly. Oh, so, sorry, the other way around, monthly to fortnightly. So they had, uh, they were actually actively looking to commission at the time, um, and they were actually looking for new creators. They were wanting their own stable, um, you know, separate from the 2000 AD guys. Uh, and people that probably are new and cheap as well, uh, as I probably later found out, uh, didn't cost as much money. But that was fair enough. That was great because obviously it was a, it was a, it was a in into the industry. You know, obviously the the, the 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 template for Judge Dread magazine was 
you know, the equivalent of Judge Dredd and the equivalent of Mega City One, but over the world. So you had, you know, South American One, uh, the African uh, Brexit, and Calhab was obviously mentioned. And I, I kind of started the pitch for what became Calhab Justice with uh, Alan Grant anecdote. And I think any time, I think that's a any time you're you're pitching, you you can you can do a lot worse and start with an Alan Grant anecdote. And I think it was a Q and A was asked at one point um, if he would ever consider doing a Punisher story based in Scotland. And Alan goes, "Well, I would do, but the problem is the way he dresses, the way he looks. As soon as he arrives in Scotland, as soon as he, as soon as he arrives in Glasgow, he's going to get lifted by the police like that." And that was uh, the basis for, uh, you know, pitching for Calhab Justice. Rather quite too easy, probably quite easy after that. Um, it was a case of going back, uh, doing a couple of pages of synopsis, and then I got a commission, more or less, there, there and then. Um, and that's that's how Calhab Justice was formed. And how are you feeling? I mean, after knowing that it's, it's something you want to do and it's... It's a goal that you want to try and get it to, and knowing that you've had a few rejections and building up to it, and then you finally seem to like get through the door. I mean, oh, it was fantastic! It was mm. great. Um, it was, I was in my um, early to mid twenties, and I was living this bohemian lifestyle. I don't remember doing much writing. Uh, when people actually read the stuff, they probably will be nodding sagely at this point. <laughs> I remember uh, drinking a lot of coffee and, and, and drinking a lot of beer. We used to congregate around the Tron quite a bit, sort of like we were closely aligned at the time to AKA Comics, which was uh, owned by uh, the great John McShane. I don't remember much about the, the writing side of things. I think I used to go to the Mitchell Library on occasion, um, do a couple of hours in there, uh, then have a lunch of chips and beans and then <laughs> head down, down to the Tron. But it was a great, great lifestyle, and it was great. It was, it was fantastic. Um, it came at the right time. I didn't have any uh, attachments at the time. Didn't no children, uh, no mortgage to pay. It was a fantastic period in my in my life. Uh, it couldn't last forever, obviously. But uh, you know, I still look back at it with incredible fondness. And I'm guessing as well at that time, you know, in the early '90s and mid '90s, and and AKA's there, and then you know, scams about to kick off if it hasn't already, and you've got a pool of people that you know have now gone on to be stalwarts within the industry of either writing or uh, doing illustration work or whatever it is. There's there's significant names from around that time that have really gone off and and been big within the industry, and yeah. I, and I'm guessing for you then it would just they were all just, you know, like Frank Wilde, who had been Frank Wilde, I mean, Vincent Egan at the time, or, or Robbie Morrison, you know, or, or people like that were just been cutting around and being all in the same haunts. Well, yes and no. I think that this is pre-scam, I think, when we all got together. And um, there was there was still a, a, a dichotomy, there was still a... Well, it's not the right word, but there's still a that we had people like Gary Erskine and Colin McNeil who are already established, incredibly well established. In fact, I, I used to when I was stoking about with Colin, I, I couldn't get my head round uh, that this was a guy who did Chopper in America. And Gary Erskine was like at the time was Warren Ellis's favourite artist, and 
and, and then it was us that were just breaking in, and uh, myself and Robbie Morrison and uh, Robert McCallum, Vincent, and there was other guys as well. So it was got it was a nice, healthy mix. I mean, we all knew that Vincent was brilliant before probably Vincent did. How I met Robbie Morrison was actually in London. Um, he was actually sitting at a bar. Uh, it was one of the it was like in the UCAC. In fact, there was only two conventions in Britain at the time: it was Glasgow and UCAC. Uh, so everybody went to to both of them, and uh, Robbie was uh, sitting at the bar, and uh, I, I knew John McShane from the shop, so I went over and said hello, and he said, "Oh, there's Robbie. He's starting magazine as well." So I went over to the bar and introduced myself, chatting away to Robbie, and uh, Robbie was telling me he'd been on the phone to David Bishop, and David said, "Oh, I." Uh, there's another guy, another Scottish guy uh, starting, working for me. And Robbie said, no, aye, aye, aye. And, uh, he's from Adrossin. And Robbie was like that. Adrossin? <laughs> what? <laughs> like that. So that's how me and, and Robbie uh, started chatting away. Um, he was from Linwood, which is, I don't know why he was suddenly thinking that was a, a few notches above Adrossin, but there you go. <laughs> Probably sounds a wee bit better. This love for comics and the comics medium and talking about comics and talking about ideas and all that, it was it was just a perfect storm. And we all kinda of like congregated together and it was it was it was a great for a few years while we were that age and uh, you weren't encumbered by all sorts of social pressures and it was still new and still exciting and uh, you know, and everybody was banding together and we were all going in the same direction. Uh, it was fantastic, but these things don't last forever, uh, especially when you've got creative types. Um, you know, people want to go in their separate directions, or you know, um, you know, agendas start happening, and, and it's just human nature, I suppose. And I guess as well, it's the way that opportunities fall. Opportunities aren't necessarily equal, or everyone gets the same opportunity at the same time. People will get picked up, and one or two, or just one of you, will be like, right. I've now got this job here and that means that they just might disappear for a while or, or completely and other people start you know collaborating other stuff so there obviously comes a point where everyone's in the same pool or everyone's working in the same kind of places and then over time as people develop and opportunities come up people then start disappearing don't they it's just it's like any any walk of life in any kind of uh, yeah, place I, that people uh, yeah, work in uh, you know yeah and I guess you then you're able to look back and if you keep these relationships and connections open and then you can like 10, 15 years, whatever it is, and look back and go, all right, you know, you're still doing this and you're working here and doing that. Because what's been interesting in having these conversations is that there's still a good, good core of people that I've spoken to are still working in some way in producing comics. And even though other people have, have, have had different experiences and different successes, Everyone at everyone at some level is still producing, and that that's that's still going on from like you know the seventies or eighties or nineties all the way yeah. through. Yeah, I, I would agree with that, and I think it was it was one of those strange um, things we had so many people from. I I remember the, the FedEx guy used to turn up. I was, did some stuff for the the states. He knew all the comics guys, and we all lived in a a fairly small radius. It was mm. Gary Erskine, it was Vincent. It's various, various other people, and so the FedEx guy was quite well acquainted, not because he was a comics fan, but it was just so many of us concentrated in the mm. the one area. I, I always said, I always said, John McShane, if he's, I'm sure he'll be listening to this, he should write. I've told him this before, but he should should write a book about it because, and the ending would be. I remember I was in, um, I was in the San Diego Comic Con, 
uh, quite a few moons ago and I walked in and uh, DC I don't know, I've not been in San Diego for a while, but at that time DC had the, the centre ground. They had a big, huge booth, as they would call it, but I mean, it was like massive. So the size of a small country. And they had these huge bits of artwork that would drape down. And uh, on one side, they had the Sandman book, I think it's the 20th anniversary book, and the cover was by Vincent Frank Whiteley. On the other hand, they had uh, the Authority uh, issue one by Robbie Morrison. So there I was walking in San Diego, which is the eighth wonder of the world, if you've ever been there. I mean, it really is the most massive place. And and there I was looking at the centrepiece uh, of, of, of San Diego Comic Convention, Comic Con. And it was two guys that I'd been drinking with, like, you know, six, seven years previously. Mm. And I thought, I thought that was that would have been a nice little final chapter um, uh, to that to that group of, of guys that got together. So yeah, it was just one of these things. You can't really explain it. You don't. I mean, people. I, I get asked a lot, and um, you know, why so many Scottish people write comics? And I suppose the kind of obvious answers because there's not really much else to do. You know, uh, during the winter. The winter and uh, you know lack of sunlight. You know you have to do something with your time. These days there used to be lots of a big Scottish contingent that used to go to these conventions, and now it seems uh, I think latterly when I when I was still going to conventions, it was replaced by the Irish. So, mm-hmm. And there was lots of guys that were kind of like the same in the same boat. I don't know if they were influenced by Garth Ennis and uh, and, and and you know John McCrae and people like that, and we in turn were influenced by. Uh, Alan Grant, John Wagner, mm. Grant Morrison, uh, Mark Miller. Um, it might work that way, you know. Mm. Like you know, supposedly everybody wants to play tennis, and two weeks during Wimbledon, yeah. <laughs> you know, everybody <laughs> wants to be Andy Murray. Um, that that kind of thing, uh, possibly. I don't know, uh, but yeah, it's, it was great to be part of. Yeah, it's something as I say, I look back at with incredible fondness. Mm. So when you get when you get the story in the magazine and 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 you do, Karen, I mean, are you is there ambition and hope that this will just keep turning over and you've got more ideas or because when I've spoken to like David Bishop and other people who were either working directly in the magazine or trying to contribute stories to it, it seemed at that time it was like just throw as much stuff down as possible uh-huh. and hopefully some of it will stick uh-huh. and snowball from there yep. and then see where the other opportunities come. Maybe you'll be fed into 2000 AD if there's an opportunity or you know, or they're behind on something or maybe try and see if there's anything in the States-wise. I mean, where were you post-92? Well, I, I was with the magazine for about three years, I think. Um, and, yeah, I, well, there's kind of like two different questions there I think the first one would be like did I think that it would ever end and at one point I didn't think it would ever end I just thought it was conveyor belt we were fed in the uh, the idea that um, you do your your, your kind of years in uh, the magazine 2018 and then you move to America mm. just like that because that's what our predecessors if you like um, the John Smiths and Grants and um, Millers and various people like that um, had done, but of course there was an opportunity for them. There was a there was a there was a gap that they could fill, but of course these guys weren't moving on. Warren Ellis wasn't moving on. Grant Morrison wasn't moving on, 
And I think, you know, you, suddenly there was a realisation that perhaps it's not it's quite as simplistic as you had mapped it out in your head at, at one point. So I did, the, I did the three years in the magazine. I wouldn't say that uh, everything I did was a, a critical success. <laughs> Equally, I suppose, uh, what I did was a critical f- failure either. But I plodded along and moan we world. Then it got to the point where the magazine... It became full cycle for me because the magazine went back from being fortnightly monthly, mm. and there was uh, there was five regular writers at the time. Obviously, as a monthly, it couldn't sustain that, so it made sense because they went with um, it was Chris Stanley who did Harmony, Robbie who did Shimura, Gordon Rennie who did Missionary Man, and it was myself and Cy Spencer who were were let go for want of a better way of uh, putting it. And to be honest, that was fair enough because uh, you know we they, they were the the most popular. They, they were the writers of the most popular mm. script. And but it obviously, it did hit me badly at the time. I, I was I, it was my dream job, and although it was quite it was getting more stressful near the end. Um, you know, it still hit me quite bad. It was was my not only that it was my main source of income as mm. well. Uh, work for the magazine. You know, I had to kind of like. Uh, Stand, you know, lift myself back up from that. It was one of the life's hard knocks, you know, that you, you that you, you will get, um, you know, over, you know, the longer you live, the more you will experience them. I suppose the ups and downs. So, uh, yeah, that was particularly grueling. But I mean, I still was able to. I, I went then start working for. I did some stuff for Dark Horse and some work for Calibar and started, you know, and I, I did some work for DC and Marvel and... Um, and I'm, I'm guessing with the likes of Dark Horse and then DC and Marvel, you're just throwing scripts out. You're just putting stuff out and seeing what's the opportunity or are they based on what you've done in the magazine saying, you know, we, we've got this, would you be interested in like developing and working on it and creating it? I mean, how, at that stage, how's that conversation starting? Is it you approaching them? Me approaching them most of the times, um, I was able to to go to. I was lo- lucky enough to go to um, the odd American convention, and I think even at that time, and I would go to New York and go and see Marvel and go and see uh, DC. Um, I, there wasn't necessarily much of a link between the magazine stuff. I think it was more when I was working for Caliber and I was doing like American style comics. Mm. And again, the Caliber thing, bizarrely enough, was was the same thing because Caliber had, had a lot of uh, creators that moved on to Marvel. Um, and again, there was all these guys in Caliber going, "Yeah, we'll do our two years, three years with Caliber, and we'll move on to Marvel." And then realizing, "No, oh, wait a minute, these guys that are at Marvel aren't going to move on anytime soon." So another plan foiled, but I haven't said that. I did. I did garner uh, a, a, quite a, a better critical um, name for myself. I think with some of the the, the material that I did, uh, Raven Chronicles, did Gabriel, Monks of Stars. Started working with like you know uh, American artists and like people like Mike Perkins, mm. who who went on to break America probably more than he did um, the UK, and and through that, yeah, I think. You know enough people read it and, and, and liked it. It's 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 a funny process. It's not like it's very difficult to describe even now. It's not all, it, it it comes out when you describe it as being linear, because obviously you you would then you know send some of uh, your published work in, then you would put in a proposal. The the proposal might get accepted. Then you know you you go through the various. Uh, 
um, different stages of uh, production, various hoops, and then you eventually get a script, and then you'll get somebody to draw it, and then you know you might have to wait for six months uh, for it to come out. And in, in, in some cases, especially with Marvel and DC, it would be inventory, which we might never see the light of day. Um, so there's all these, and then of course you've got all those hoops to go through, and then of course it then goes out to the the, the public domain, and then it's whether people actually like it. Mm. And there's so many variables, mm. um, and so it's very it's difficult to kind of like ascertain whether it's something that's going to work. Or, so it has to be. It always has to be. It has come from from yourself, uh, what you do and how you come across, I suppose, and, and the ideas that you have and and the, the willingness to work and, 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 and be better, I think, at, at writing and, and structure and what have you. I think the one thing with the magazine was that um, I, I didn't really understand structure uh, as such. I, I could write dialogue and I could write scenes and and with short stories you can get away with that. So you can just allow the momentum of the dialogue to take you to the a natural end. Then when I started doing four parters and five parters and six parters, um, it suddenly dawned on me that I didn't really have the wherewithal to keep the reader with me, and so I had to learn structure. So bizarrely enough, I, I felt I was in a position where I remember um, I think it was Axel Alonso at Marvel um, rejected one of my. Uh, stories because he said it, it, it was too structured it was too you know on the nose and I was delighted with that you know again it was like uh, you know I thought oh finally I've cracked this structure obviously they went from one from being you know slightly too off the cuff to, to being so on the cuff um, that you know it was <laughs> just you know it was the equivalent of reading a, a telephone directory <laughs> Um, so, in fact, it probably was what I pitched was a telephone directory actually, uh, but I was delighted with that. And I, so, again, it, it's 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 been a when I look back at my my writing career, um, it, it's been a evolvement, if you like, evolution. Evolvement is evolvement a word? Is it a motor car or something? <laughs> the evolution of. Uh, you know, uh, me as a person, me as a writer, which are kind of obviously inextricably linked. The, the the idea that it's it's linear when you verbalise it and you start a story and then you know it develops it and it's about six, seven different stages and then before you know it, it's out in ether. I think that's something that that's seldom really explained to anyone starting off any career. But I think especially in a in a creative enterprise and creative medium where just because somebody has an idea and they believe it to be a good idea or other people look at it and go, that's a great idea, you know, you need to work on this and get out uh. there. They think that it's just going to work. They think that once it's down on paper, an editor will take it, will pick it up and go, there's your, you know, suitcase full of money. You're about to be a, a rock star from this and the public are going to love it. And it's literally a few changes, cross those T's, dot those I's and we'll get out there and you're going to be the next big thing. The reality is that like you said there's the repetition repetition and there's also a long period where there's no communication with anyone so you know before the emails people are sending stuff off artwork or stories in in the post 
when emails come along, that stuff goes out, and it's like you've sent it into ether, and you're never going to hear back again because the radio goes silent. And then six, seven, eight, nine, ten months, whatever it is, word then comes back and goes right. We've shelved it, or we've picked it up, and you need to do more work with it. You need to do this, or you know, uh. whatever it is. And that's something, as a writer or an artist, or whatever it is, something you need to take on that you may never considered or never known, and you now realise this is part of my job. Part of my job is then having to realise how long this machine takes. Yeah, you know, and I, I, you always hear it usually about films, for instance. Films take several years to get off the ground for various reasons, for funding and, and pre-production and making it and post-production and all the rest of it. It's a long, arduous process just to get an idea. And, I, and it's the same with the comics as well, in the making a comic. And the one element of it, of doing the story and creating it and writing it, is to then, it's, I mean, you tell me, but I suspect hardly ever, if ever at all, an editor turns around and goes, yep, that's good enough, right? I'll just go and find an artist. They're going to batter that out in a few months or weeks, whatever it is, and jobs are good in. Yeah. Usually it's like, actually, do you want to go back and re-examine a couple of points in this and maybe connect it up? You know, and you're saying there about getting the structure and when you feel like it's finally down, someone's actually saying, you've structured the hell out of this. Uh-huh. There's all these different things that you're working on and it takes a long time before you feel comfortable with your voice that you've chosen to write in and how you see it. And then also making sure that you know how to speak to other people that you have to work with. Work with the editors and, and you know the inkers and the illustrators and all the rest of it once you can get that message across. And I guess as well, finding relationships with people you work with. Yes. Uh, well, I could give you lots of different examples of how how it works. We, you use a film analogy, and yeah, we all lo- use film analogies. Um, it's almost like when I do a workshop, uh, you're mentioning certain films or TV series, and that's the, the kind of like the, the to, to get the the hoi polloi, if I can call them that, interested in the kind of comic side of things, or to give it some sort of uh, you know context. Uh, but uh, when I've I've talked to TV producers and. Uh, on occasion, and the impression I always get is that um, yeah, something can be in pre-production for years. Uh, it can be in the what is it the the the, the blacklist or whatever it's called. Yeah. You know the um, and, but then somebody's screaming for a, we need a script. We need a script now. And you know it doesn't matter how rubbish it is. I mean, because you got like even the, the James Bond films where they kind of like they're shooting without a script and all that that kind of stuff. So it's like, you know, we're having this James Bond film and we're filming it now irrespective of whether we've got a script or anything. So, uh, and, and comics is probably similar to that because you you all, I think if you get yourself a, a reputation in, in some ways as being somebody that can, uh, you know, um, deliver a script over the weekend, um, if somebody needs it, that's probably just as valuable as being the next Alan Moore, you know, or Warren Ellis. Um and I'm sure even Alan and Warren had to go through that phase where they had to prove that they could do a, you know, a, a quick turnover. Um, such is the, the nature of comic publishing and, and I would say publishing in, in nature. And so from that kind of frenzy, you know, having to fill in certain pages, obviously having to have, you know, you can't, you, if you've got a 28-page publication, you can't commission a 30-page story unless you're, you're, you're looking to, um, you know, uh, dilute it down, or you know, or whatever. Um, and I've I found that 
from my, my, the third stage, if you like, has being a kind of like a, a, a quasi type publisher. It's like having to, you know, make sure that you've got enough pages to to fill the book. Uh, so I can I can see it from from both sides. But from that kind of rather frenzied nature, uh, you know, it's uh, you know you, you know you can get. I, I don't think anybody's got a plan or anybody actually knows. You know, they'll look at a script and say, "This is this is brilliant. This is going to be absolutely superb." But it just doesn't work that way. I mean, mm. it just—it's very difficult to put your um, finger on it. I've had the odd small critical success, and I've had a few critical, I suppose, disappointments. And I can hand in heart say, from my point of view, when I go into a project I'm always hopeful I'll always have that kind of inner drive and inner belief that it's going to be the best thing I've ever done and that, that's that's part of the, the, the creative process for me but uh, you know how it manifests itself and how it comes out of it I, I mean I've been, I've been involved where I've just sent a script not had any feedback and then the, the next time I've feedback it's actually been solicited and it's actually going to appear it's been given the art it's drawn up lettered uh, I've also um, worked in scripts where I've been asked to do endless amounts of rewrites to the point where I've got absolutely, absolutely no clue as to what I'm writing at all, you know. Mm. Uh, and again, um, a more recent example of that is when we were doing Savant, working on it so many times, and there was various reasons for that as well. Um, it's so much so that I still struggle to read the start of Savant without feeling like I'm about to hemorrhage. I actually feel like blood is coming out of my my eyes. So I, I, because, there's, no, there's no rhyme or reason to it at all. But because there's, there's just so much going on with it and all the different things that happen with that one particular thing. Because when I read it, I love it. I love that story for a whole host of different reasons. I think particularly for me, Finn Cram's colouring is uh-huh. just out this world. It's just that that guy is seriously talented and I think part of that showcasing in his work is clearly in Savant I just brilliant but I, when I picked it up for the first time I loved reading that but I don't have any of the emotional or background uh-huh. history with you that you do obviously creating it yeah well that's, that's quite important as well from the point of view of um, being so involved I mean all, all writers want to get to a point where they want to be involved in all the processes, whether that's a helpful thing or not, or not. And uh, but I, I suppose with experience, you should be better at it. You should be more knowledgeable about all the other um, aspects of bringing a, a comic or whatever together. And uh, I think with Savant, it was sort of like uh, you know all these various different elements that, that, that uh, it's almost difficult to explain uh, without it coming across as being quite petty and anal and laughable but I suppose that's just you know what 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 we were all this you know the kind of sense of where we were at that time mm. and trying to put it all together but the important thing is it doesn't really matter how you get from A to B um, you know, I always say to uh, people, it's like the final, like, like you say, the reader doesn't care. Why Why should the reader care if this was rewritten 20 times or if this is just off the cuff or this took me 10 minutes to write? You, you do get a lot of like uh, people that come, oh, it took me two years to write this or whatever, it's taken two years. And 
but you think, well, you know, but it has to be judged in what the final result is. And I suppose, like, creators can get, and writers can get a bit precious and very uh, too close to, to, to the subject material in, in that sense. But again, it's all, all we do with randoms, and, you know, we had no idea that Savannah, we obviously hoped it would be, uh, we'd, we'd invested a lot of time into it. But even like the creative team, um, Finn and Will well, came like from random elements. It just happened to be that I had this script, which I had earlier versions of. Um, I had uh, sort of like uh, a publish- publisher was on board for it and then it didn't work out. So I had this script that I wanted to kind of work on. I had an idea of how I was going to work on it. And then Will became available, and then suddenly Finn became randomly became available as well. I think he got in contact with me, and uh, I was able to put them together. And in fact, I think they first met each other in London, and uh, you know, it, it, it's just one of those things. I mean, it's, as I say, it's very difficult to, you know, you can. You, you can you can look at these things in the process of how it all comes together and say that happened, this happened, that happened, and, and you know you can say it in a linear way, but it doesn't. It's all jumbled up and all that, and mm. it's like how you make you take all these ingredients, and it's like Fanny Craddock, uh, <laughs> who was a, a chef of some renown on her day, and so she would get her currants and her flour and all that stuff, and she would put it together and make, you know. Meringue or something like that. Um, so it's almost like a, a, it's a Fanny Craddock way of um, making comics. Making comics, or maybe just the Fanny way. <laughs> 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 Obviously, leading up to that, but there you go. And how are you in terms of handing your stuff over? I mean, again, going from the stages of of working for you know major players and the professional end to then go into the indie side and it being well you had originally worked with Blackheart Press prior to you doing I did I was there for a wee while so you had you'd already had a kind of flavour of it of, of the indie scene of seeing different people doing different things and you contributing to it before you then set up your own thing independently completely yes uh-huh. well BHP was uh, through David Brasher who's a good friend remains a good friend of mine um, and he what, to be fair, David was always very much into self-publishing, and of course, when print and demand came about, you know, again, it allowed um, people to actually produce something like a, a you know, twenty-four page comic without having to invest in yeah. thousands of copies, um, and in, in order to make it, uh, you know, viable, you could you could basically order a hundred fifty, you know. Um, and it, it, you know the margins were so much reduced by this, you know, technology, PDFs, etc. So um, it was it was always something that I was aware of, but uh, you know, uh, and but it came at the time I, I'd been doing a lot of work for Cartoon Network. Um, I'd uh, been working for the DC books, uh, working Samurai Jack, Johnny Bravo, Camp Laszlo, and all that, and then there was that work stopped. And when that work stopped, I, I was a bit bereft. I, I didn't really have anything else to move on to. And it did feel that at that time for me personally, um, I think everybody has a, a sell-by date uh, as a writer. Um, 
Meaning, uh, meaning what though? Meaning that the ideas are no longer any good, or uh, meaning meaning that I'd been around for a while and that there was young. Yeah, there's, a, there's a species out there called young people. <laughs> <laughs> Bastards, uh, yeah, uh, yes, yes, uh, yes. So there's young writers coming along. So there's obviously a natural wastage, if I can describe myself in such elegant uh, terms. Uh, and I, f- I really felt I'd. I'd come to the end of my shelf life. Basically, I was knocking in the same old, uh, tired old doors, if doors can be tired. Um, I, I had this, this same old, tired old face. Thought, thought about going for a face transplant. It would have been far too expensive. Uh, and and it was been, these tired old doors were being answered by the same tired old faces, so I'm sure they wouldn't see themselves that way. And there was really nothing happening. There was mm. nothing. A lot, a lot of it is sort of creating a, the illusion of, you know, being the next best thing or movement or you know excitement sometimes and, and I'd exhausted all channels mm. um, in that so uh, I, I was at a, a, a pretty low ebb didn't really know what to do with myself and then suddenly this you know this self-publishing indie revolution was happening and someone who I knew very well um, was was involved in it so it just seemed a natural thing, and it was great. It was a real shot in the arm to to have that kind of, you know, um, t- it was a real uh, from a, a you know idea point of view and a, a new innovative way of expressing yourself. And of course, I started it, you know, this great new adventure by reprinting some old stuff. <laughs> and then when you're doing, I mean. I've spoken to various John Farnham and David and also Sha as well about Devolution and where B- well, Blackheart Press was and then went on to BHP. What then makes you want to go on and do your own thing? Well, I think essentially BHP at the time, uh, I've always known them as BHP, um, Blackhearted Press. I suppose it works, doesn't it? Mm. <laughs> Either way. Um, well, I mean, BHP was essentially 50% making comics and 50% organising uh, Marts and uh, the Glasgow Comic Con and mm. various other Comic Cons. And for me, I didn't have the time or interest, frankly, in, in, in organising the con side of things. Um, so, it was, you know, it came to like Glasgow Comic Con, you know, obviously realistically and quite rightly, they were no longer... You know, concentrating on producing comics, they wanted to go on and spend time uh, making the Glasgow Con uh, such a success as it was uh, at the time. And uh, from my point of view, I thought, well, you know, I, I'm not really. That's not really my uh, really what I want to do. I want to move on and and do my own comics. So I think it was just a a natural parting of the ways mm. I think it was a great time it was a real shot in the arm for me um, being involved with the guys um, initially uh, again it was one of these things you all come together we were socialising quite a lot um, it was great we were kind of like working in you know various different projects and all that but eventually once you've got that out of your system if you like um, it's time to you know you, you can only have a look at it and say, well, this is the direction I want to go on. Mm. And we were all, at the time, there was four of us, we were all four individuals. Mm. And, I mean, again, it was something that uh, BHP was started by by Dave and the two other guys, and 
um, I came on board a bit later and I left um, I, I, as I say I wasn't there very long but certainly from a personal point of view it was it was, it was fantastic experience just to sort of like be part of such a creative um, you know um, environment mm. small press at that time before this is this is when there was still you know it was people like ourselves that were doing it Eddie Murphy mm-hmm. uh, people like that you could count probably as about twenty uh, creators obviously Jim Stewart had been doing it so much you know um, further back than we had Dave Alexander I mean now it just seems like everybody in their granny is publishing a comic which is fair enough but uh, it doesn't quite have the same oh, I don't, you know, I'm going to say something controversial. Uh, it's not quite as you know selective and as unique as experience as it was at the time. So, but you know it was great, it mm. was brilliant, um, and and but I, and then I went on to do Planet Jimbot. But again, it's sort of like essentially you're you're doing the same thing. Uh, you know you're kind of uh, you know with BHP we were kind of like managing our own titles. They were all very distinct. Mm. Uh, they were all very much um, we were involved in them and. And you know it was a sort of like a collect collective, so there wasn't any great change from moving from BHP to Planet Jimbo. It was still mostly myself, uh, you know, putting out the comics that I wanted to put out. But obviously, with with a lot of help from Jim Campbell, Ellie, um, you know, kind of mainstays uh, like that, that you know, enabled did all the technical stuff that I wasn't very good at Jim Campbell was first wasn't he I mean Jim Campbell was one of the first people that you start working with in that guys because I, Ellie comes in a wee bit later when yes I'm but it's yes, initially it's, it's Jim Campbell and he's he is known then as, as the letter in terms of what he's doing in comics that's that's his fo- I know he does other stuff but that was the focus was doing lettering and stuff or was it other stuff that he was involved with when he was helping you uh, well Jim's just too helpful for his own good right. I think that's his problem um, he's uh, I'd, I, he was the, originally the letterer um, Savant originally was with um, a publication called Strip and Jim was a letterer so it wasn't my decision it was, but um, I got but Jim gets in, is very proactive and mm. gets in contact with the creators and he, he asks for feedback on you know his lettering um, prides himself and 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 never having done the same sound effect twice, mm. you know that kind of, you know he's just a, uh, he's just so good at what he does. And but also he he will go the extra mile uh, from the production point of view and design point of view. And uh, he 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 does have a background. He was a and he still is a writer and uh, and an artist. And he has worked for Warhammer, and I think he's worked for the magazine in the past. So we we, we, we didn't know each other, but we, we were we came from the same gene pool, if you like. Mm. Um, so and we, we kind of collect. I'm only met Jim a few times, but we collect. We we collect, and uh, uh, you you know we've got the same sort of like attitude towards getting things done and how how you do them, uh, and. At the time, Jim was doing a lot of stuff for small press. Um, I think less so now. He's, you know, he's got more work than he knows what to do with. Mm. Uh, but that's obviously, you know, uh, testament and, to and how good yeah, he is. Exactly, aye. Um, so, 
yeah, we, it was just like two minds that came together. I, I mean, obviously, I, I recognised something in Jim, um, and that's why I reached out to him with Planet Jim Bot, and and he hopefully recognised something in me, and that's why, he, you know, it was res, res, reciprocated my my advances. Mm. I wooed him. <laughs> and how were you finding it in terms of of handing work over? I mean, have you? Have you never had a problem handing over your prose and letting people just get on with it? Or were you, has there been different points in your career where you, you've had to be giving minutiae of detail or have you just been stand back and said, right, get on with it? I mean, your relationship with artists, because you've worked with different, a whole host of different artists along yeah. the way. So how have you found that? Well, I, I see a script as just a, a first draft of, of, of a comic. So you a finished script for me. Um, so I just put it to one side once it goes to the artist and then I'm only really interested in the artwork coming back and I'll then take my script and then obviously mould it towards what the, you know, the artwork um, very rarely will I go back to the original script um, to make a point usually when I'm having an argument with an artist and I have to go back to the original script that's the only time I don't go back for me there's no point getting too attached to these things. It's very ephemeral, ephemeral, whatever that word is. Um, it's very much a, you know, um, been there and done it. Mm. And it's irrelevant now when does that work comes in. Um, I mean, interestingly enough, at one time <laughs> um, I was uh, doing an issue of Wolf Country mm-hmm. and I went over to see Will as he was putting the finishing touches. It's, I think it's issue four. It was the one where the, he's done, he does these um, double-page spreads of, like, millions of werewolves. He actually told me he counted them one time. It was about 72 or something like that. So it's just a pack of werewolves, basically lots of them. And uh, I, kinda, I was looking at the screen, and I was going, eh, how many pages is this? And he went, uh, 22. I went, 22? No, it's 20. It's 20 pages, 20 page script. Wait, 22. And he said, no, it was a 22 page script. I called him every name under the sun. Called him a liar, <laughs> heretic. Um, and then I went back and checked the script and it was 22 pages. And I have no recollection why <laughs> I suddenly went from a 20 page um, story to a 22 page story. So... Yeah, that was one of the times when I actually had to go back. But it was probably for good reasons, because I was, uh, you know, blackening Will's good name. But uh, otherwise, nah, I don't really... There's no point getting hung up about these things. There's no point. It's just, you, you've done it, and once you send it off, you have to let go. Now, that's, I didn't always have that. That's something I've, I've, I've learned, as I've, 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 you know, disciplined my brain to, to think that way. Mm. Uh, it, it tends to be like... The way I look anyway, I'm a very short term to middle term. I don't really like looking that far ahead in any shape or form. So, and, and equally, I don't like looking back. I, will, I should look back a wee bit more, but I don't. It just seems to be on the moment. And so once it's done, you get the artwork back and then it's like a new draft of the actual comic. I don't see the script as the be, be all and end all. And even with writing a novel as well, um, Ellie was editor on it. She spent a lot of time on it, 
a lot of notes. And uh, Kirsten Murray was proofreader and she spent a bit of time on it as well. So it was coming back and, you know, it's so many different versions of the actual book mm. and you can't really get attached to any of it. Mm. It's best to just expunge it all and just deal with you know, what version you've got in front of you and make that the best mm. best you can. So that's probably the best way of doing it, really. I, I don't sit there and look at artwork and think, oh, that guy, that guy, yeah. what was he thinking? That guy <laughs> was supposed to be in the, the mid to background and he's definitely in the background. It's absolutely, he's ruined my life. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not that way inclined. Right, okay. I mean, touching on the book there, because you've gone, you have gone kind of full circle from starting off, you know, of, of writing six, seven pages when you're at school to then going through the years and focusing down and doing an actual book. But taking, because the book you've just you've just finished writing is now out there is good cop bad cop and it's taken from actual one of one of the stories that you made into comic and uh, you've done yes, a few sorry. years ago. Aye. How how was that in terms of the idea of did, was that always going to be a, a a book in your idea was that always going to be a novel story or was there do you have a few other comics or a few other ideas that you had in general that you thought I want to go and write a book and do it. Well, I, I, I'd always wanted to write a novel. As all writers, uh, they come up with all sorts of crap, don't we? But uh, yeah, I always want to write a novel. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'll get to it eventually. You know, you know. Um, and w- what happened was, Good Cop, Bad Cop. Yeah, it came came out as a comic, and then Eddie Murphy um, took it on, took it um, and made it into a graphic novel. It was two two graphic novels. And it just happened to be that we we'd reached the the end of our budget. We still had about maybe eight pages to fill. So I think uh, I think me and Eddie had we think about it, and I said, right, okay, I'll I'll do case books, which were effectively one page of good good cop, um, detective inspector Brian Fisher, being really good and nice and enjoying his custard creams and stuff like that. And then we had uh, another page where he would change into to bad cop and it was all prose and obviously it was how how the, the character was conveyed um, through the prose um, you know the, the kind of frame of mind that he was actually in at that, that point. I should explain that good cop bad cop uh, is, is a kind of play in Jekyll and Hyde um, modern crime equivalent if you like where the good cop and the bad cop are the same person and the good cop's very very good and the bad cop's very, very bad. And uh, so we had that as a kind of case books. And interestingly enough, um, some of the feedback we got, some of the, the reviews we got, um, people said that was the best thing about it. They, I mean, they enjoyed it, but they, they really enjoyed the case books. And there was one review in particular that stuck out and, and claimed that the fact that I'd done it as a comic strip was just pure laziness. In <laughs> my part that actually should be a prose story so not that I was actually thinking yeah you're right I'm going to write a book but um, it did obviously have a seed that was imprinted in my mind what actually happened the catalyst for it was um, I'd I'd always said with Planet Jim Bot I'd do about five years and then see where I was at that point in time that's what I kind of promised myself and we were getting to the end of that five years and 
by happy coincidence, um, what is it, serendipity? Mm-hmm. Is, that, is that the word? Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to the New York Comic Con, I think it was in 2015, late 2015, and... Uh, I, I, as, as a punter? Or no, well, I, I, well, no, as a punter, I wasn't a guest at it. Um, as a punter. But I'd been... Yeah, yeah, I was hooking up with Michael Perkins and stuff like that. All these Comic Cons just become a grey amorphous blob. They all, fit, you know, merge into each other. But in this case, I was, I was meeting up with um, uh, one of the DC editors, and uh, that was kind of almost the main reason for the main reason from a, a working writing point of view for going over. I think I saw Morrissey in the Radio City Music Hall that time when I was over as well. So, you know, I was doing other stuff. But yeah, so I met up uh, with the editor and um, we discussed a, a couple of possible pitches. And for me, this was uh, part of it. Plant Jimbot was all about, you know. Um, getting to a point where I could start pitching to DC and Marvel again um, after coming to that impasse where you know I mm. felt that I had nothing new to give. For me, that was a, it was a great sense of uh, valediction, if you like, was uh, validated uh, me in some ways. And I thought that, yeah, I'm bringing something new to the table and that's what Planet Jim bought. For me, that was one of the main um, you know, motivations uh, behind behind Planet Jumbot for myself anyway. And so I was doing all the pitches and stuff like that and and one of them uh, was quite, it was for uh, Amanda Waller, a miniseries, uh, the person, nominal uh, person in charge of the Suicide Squad. Mm. And I may as well uh, talk about the pitch actually. It was a uh, it was Amanda Wallet. She was uh, approaching some days off, and she's got a sister uh, who she's estranged from, and her sister, and she's got a niece um, through her sister, and she sort of like uses all this surveillance. It's slightly creepy, I suppose, but she uses all this surveillance equipment and her, uh, at her behest in order to kind of just check up and occasionally in her niece. And uh, our sister sort of like, uh, she was employed with the government at a very low level, um, nothing to do with uh, Amanda Waller. Anyway, uh, this low-grade uh, Gotham gang kidnaps her in order to get some extortion, get some ransom money. And then after that, it becomes a race against time because as she uh, Amanda Waller's trying to suppress her connection to her niece, but as this information invariably gets out, there becomes a kind of like a, 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 you know, all these higher uh, ranked organisations till we get into the really, the really bad evil DC terrorists. Mm. Or, so they are, they they, they um, you know take take over. Um, so the okay, I'm doing a great job with this pitch, but <laughs> take, it's been a while. It's been a while. Uh, so it was. Basically, we're going up the scale in nastiness, and they would be taking the niece, and she'd be trying to shut it down. Amanda Waller and using favors with meta humans and super super criminals and all that, you know, cutting parole and all this, and try to you know duck and dive in order to try and uh, avoid um, her niece getting to the point being you know um, kidnapped or uh, by a, a organization to the point where she would she would lose all mm. chance of getting her back. And I thought, well, you know, part of the pitch would be it would be quite a nice little neat six-part miniseries and, you know, kind of be a nice wee 
chance for a TV spin-off or, or whatever. That was that was the, obviously what I was putting across anyway. Um, I think I was a wee bit more eloquent than I was there, but possibly not. But so there was a g- really good level of interest. I mean, I got notes back on it, etc. And then it was it was put in hold. Um, I think it was um, rebirth was starting, and then I think they put everything in hold in that basis. And I think having got to that point of being able to pitch to DC, and I did have some ideas that I wanted to go back to possibly work in Planet Jimbot. Um, but I was, as I say, it was coming up to this five-year period, and, and I thought, you know what, during those five years I gave my, put my heart into it. I mean, I went to a lot of conventions, was constantly, you know, for, for to, to actually make it work, have it a chance of working, um, you have to be at, on it all the time. Mm. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're writing very much. It means you're promoting and you know getting in contact with people. And I thought, you know what? After the DC experience, I don't really want to go back and do it. I need a change. I need something else. And I, and suddenly it occurred to me, you know what? See this novel that I'm always telling anybody that'll listen. You know, people I don't know meeting a bus stop. Oh, by the way, I'm going to write a novel one day. I thought uh, maybe this would be the time to to actually write one mm. and Good Cop, Bad Cop seemed was just sitting there and, and I actually thought well how you, sometimes you just need to, with something like writing a novel or any type of story that's you know going to be exponential if you like it's going to kind of you know it's not self-contained mm. in the sense of it, it's it's a, it's a good big chunk narrative chunk um, you, you have to sort of like convince yourself how you're going to do it um, and I just was went back to kind of like train spotting and how you know originally you have sort of like short stories and that's how train spotting originally came about. It was a collection of short stories that was then fleshed out into a novel. Um, well, that's my understanding of it anyway. And, and I thought, yeah, with I've already got the you know I've already got the proof of concept if you like. I've already got the short stories and, and the the actual you know comic side of things. I've already got a plot that I can use um, that, that, that could translate well into uh, a novel. But most importantly, I've also got the the, um, the landscape, if you like, the, the mental landscape. Mm. I, I can re- the, 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 the thing about uh, the novel is it really allowed me to get into the head or heads of, of the character um, to, to really, you know, delve into um, the the kind of good cop persona and the bad cop persona and how they work together and how they actually interact with uh, the outside world. Uh, it's really allowed me to give, give that canvas and give, give those ideas, uh, you know, a, a good a good grounding. And I, I suppose it was always just a, a development at the, you know, there's so many elements of the, the comic side of things. Uh, you know, Gary McLaughlin uh, was the first artist and then Luke Cooper took it on, and Will Pickering um, was involved in it. Um, and so taking all that, they, their take on the character, mm. that that kind of physical physical manifestation when it, when he changes his his persona, and and actually being able to translate that onto the page, it just seemed ready to to be made into a novel, mm. and it certainly was 
you know, for me, it's again, it's all about getting your mojo back. If I can use that, like that horrible expression. <laughs> Um, and do do you feel that is is being quite cathartic in terms of because it's been stewing and bubbling in your head to then go through it? Because I'm, I mean, I guess any writer, no matter how how good they are and, and how how much their, their output is, there's still always this struggle in terms of actually doing it and getting sitting down at the desk and, and sitting at the computer and working it out. Uh-huh. But I mean, I guess for you, there's, there's all the back the backstory of it being a comic and evolution of that, and then the long gap, and then doing the book, and now that you're here and you're on the other side of it, I mean, do you feel like the journey has been it's been not necessarily worth it, but you know, it's been quite a long process and journey for you. How do you feel now at the end of it? Now that you've got it in your hand. Well, ah, uh, right. You're not going to get a simple answer like that because the way I feel was. I've got, like, it's almost like a good cop, bad cop persona. I've got the Planet Jimbot hat that I wear, the writer's hat, and I've got a, obviously I work full-time, I've got the full-time writer's hat. Uh, no, sorry, the full-time worker's hat. And uh, and obviously the writer has to go to the, the kind of, like, person that earns the money and sort of, like, plead for more, more cash for these ventures that the writer likes to go on, mm. off on. And of course, the, the full-time worker goes, right, okay, I'll let you off this time, but this is the final time you've got to start producing the goods and all that. And of course, that's been happening probably for the last God knows how many years. Um, so you go through that kind of process, but part of it was, like, if I was going to uh, self-publish uh, the novel, I did try and get a traditional publisher involved. I did get shortlisted a couple of times, but you get to the point where you think, like, again, like you say, gets to the point where you think, you know what, it's time to do it now. Mm. Um, you know, I have to make that decision uh, to, to, to go on my own. Mm. It does help the fact that I had Planet Jimbo it, you know, previously anyway. So um, all these sort of like things came came together. But of course, part of the compact, you can tell I've been watching American Gods, part of the compact I made between my two different selves was that I would promote it as much as I, I can do, so I'm actually still promoting it. Um, I'm going to everybody in my email contacts, which is quite a lot, and I'm in, individually emailing them. Um, I'm making sure that my first paragraph that I do is actually typed out. So previously, I've been, you know, like most people do, you do these massive mailings and say mm. to to who it may concern, mm. you know who you are, mm. kind of thing. Uh, so, I, which has been. Strange in itself because um, uh, there's some people that I haven't been in contact with for seven, ten years or something like that. So, you know, the first question you ask is, are you still alive? (laughs) (laughs) You know. Do you remember me? uh, Yes, do do you remember me? And I can confirm that I am still alive, in (laughs) case you're wondering. Um, So, uh, um, you know, I'm just going through all my contacts, um, going through my comic contacts, and now I'm going into the, the murky world of the book blogger. Obviously, part of coming in today is being able to talk about the book. Um, I've been doing, uh, going to, I had a, a part of a book week. I, I got up and did a wee talk, um, uh, Renfrew Library. Mm. So uh, various things like that. So yes, yes, it's very much worthwhile, but I'm still paying my dues, if you like. I'm still, you know, there is a kind of temptation, right? I've written my novel, 
I'll just sort of like put it I'll just print off one novel and just let it gather dust mm-hmm. in a wee wee altar we alter of my own making mm. and and that's the end of it you know but um, I thought no I'm going to have to promote it as much as I can do but uh, but I'm enjoying the experience although I'm missing I don't again it's one of these uh, periods of time when I'm not actually writing unless you you count opening gambits with people that you haven't met for 15 <laughs> years in an email um, uh, I suppose that's creative writing in a sense <laughs> But, um, yeah, I'm not actually writing and I'm kind of missing it a wee bit. But that's good as well. I, I like, I, I like, the, I like the, I've, I've enjoyed the change of pace mm. of writing a novel. Um, I started writing Good Cop, Bad Cop probably in earnest, probably about two years ago. Mm. And uh, I've, en- I've enjoyed the kind of change of pace compared to comics, which is basically, you know, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am mm. type approach mm. um, at times. So I've, I've enjoyed that. One of the things that I always ask people is to cite and name people that maybe don't get enough recognition or maybe are overlooked. So just if you can think of any people. Well, again, my mind goes back to um, the early 90s and it was sort of like post Watchmen, post, you know, Dark Knight. And so there was, it, it was a great time to be reading comics in the sense of there was a lot of guys that had been out there for a while and then were given opportunities to do their own, uh, you know, their own stories. So things like uh, Ted McKeever's Stray Toasters, Matt Wagner's Grendel, Eddie uh, Bacchus by Eddie Campbell, all that kind of stuff. It really was a fantastic time to to read all these stories. Mm. And I really don't know... I know images. Come, come, come about and stuff like that. It just seems to be much more controlled, and you know, I've done my stint in Batman. Now I'm going to do an image um, series type thing, which is nothing wrong with that, obviously. But that's just the way way things are. But I really loved just the generic. You know, it was great. You know, with all these creators sort of like finally getting the opportunity to mm. to work in their um, you know the the projects that they'd been obviously they'd shopped around for and be told no chance, <laughs> no chance, and mm. then. Suddenly, these things opened up to them. Uh, I suppose the modern equivalent would be John Wagner doing Rock of the Reds, you know, sort of like that. That, that, that uh, maybe we're we're heading to another period where you know guys are that, that are so established mm. in the field are actually coming back and enjoying the kind of like the freedoms that, that, that the small press, mm. um, you know, gives them. But uh, yeah, I would say if you get a chance to check out uh, Matt Wagner's Grendel. You know anything from that time? You'd probably find that. I mean, I haven't read this for years, so probably you'd read it and you go, "Christ, this is <laughs> this is this is why nineties comics were so bad." You know, <laughs> this is unintelligible. But I loved all that stuff at the time. It was just a really exciting time, you know, um, to be reading comics. Mm. I, I'd, probably there's never not been an exciting time reading comics, but I think you have to be a certain age for it to, you know, have that kind of frizzle. Yeah. Um, you know, you have to be in your your twenties, I think. You know, to not too young and not too old. Well, thank you so much for your time, man. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Cheers.